Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Matthew Pleasy. He is a third order Dominican who resides in Chicago. He's a practicing uh, certified public accountant and catechist. He is a president of the catechismclass.com, an online based organization whose mission is to make the best, ca- best in Catholic religious education and sacramental prep available to those who need it. He writes monthly articles. I know the one we're going to talk about today is on from 1 Peter 5. He's the author of several books, including The Catholic Study of Four Last Things, Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Abstinence, and he has a recent book out called Restoring Lost Customs of Christendom. Matthew, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, like I said, I was uh, just recently had purchased a calendar for the traditional Catholic calendar pre-1955 and uh, 1962. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for somebody to talk to because when you see just how rich the calendar was and what it looks like today, you really have to ask yourself, why are, why are we going backwards? Right, right. I mean, even just, you know, this past January, we celebrated before 55 would have been the octave of the epiphany. And you can learn so much spirituality by taking up a copy of the pre-1955, you know, Ordo and Understanding. The Octave of the Epiphany was higher ranking than the Octave of Christmas. People think Christmas, Easter, highest ranking, you know, Catholics, these days. But if you look at how the church is celebrated, though, that's not the case. Because during the Christmas Octave, we have St. Stephen, you have St. John, you have the Holy Innocents, you know, you have St. Thomas Beckett. That's not the case during the Epiphany Octave, because no additional feast days could ever outrank the epiphany during its octave. So when you strip that out, you kind of lose the spirituality of the octave was not the completion of Christmantide, but really the the apex of the entire season. Then you start coming down from that towards Candlemas. So when you take that out, that's just one thing you lose from 1954 when you go to those changes of 55. And that's something a lot of traditionalists don't even know when you only you know, have the experience with the 1962 Missile, which um, doesn't have the Octave of the Epiphany, doesn't have actually many Octave, doesn't have many Vigils. So going a little bit deeper every single year and trying to understand what our forefathers did and how they celebrated the liturgy is, I think, very enriching. And that's, you know, what I've been encouraging people to do in some of my articles is don't wait for priests to tell you to go buy this and pick it up. You know, try to supplement your own education at home and with your family and try to live more liturgically. And that's one great way to do so. Well, you know, we were talking about it before we started recording. And, you know, what we seem to do is dumb down the faith, water it down, take things out, try to make things easier for everybody. When in reality, people want to be challenged. They want that depth. They want that beauty that brings us back to, you know, the beginning of the church. And we see it, right? We have less people going to Mass. Those who go to Mass, a lot of them dress like they're going to the beach. Uh, Mm -hmm. The reverence factor is, you know, especially when you're talking the Novus Ordo Mass, is is Mm -hmm. abysmal for most people. But they don't seem to get it, right? They continue to try to dumb it down and eliminate things. And it really really takes away the beauty and the opportunity for people to go deeper in their faith, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the the church is a great tapestry of of beauty, and it's 
obviously not just the Roman Rite. Of course, I, I, I exclusively go the traditional Roman Rite. I've done so now for really since 2008, and I try to go deeper and deeper, and I continue to learn things and continue to learn spirituality and learn about these forgotten feast days and things. But it's not just that. We see them in the Eastern Rites of the Church, too. So many Roman Catholics are totally unfamiliar with. There's the Melkite Catholic Church. There's the Maronite one. There's the, the Byzantine one. You have the Ruthenians. You have in Chicago the Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral. Like there's, there's so much else out there, and they have their own beauty. But unfortunately, even over the past couple decades, they've also kind of been watering down things and trying to, unfortunately, acquiesce to the world a little bit too. And what people need is they need mystery. They need, they need to be brought into the faith and understand that God uh, you know, is real and that he is uh, a mystery beyond our comprehension. And when we go to Mass, we go to worship him. We're not going to, you know, some simple community gathering. We're not going to listen to speeches. We're not going there to feel good. We're going there to worship the triune God. We're going there to bring forth our thanksgiving, our adoration, our contrition, and pour forth supplication. And that's something that you can't do in a casual environment. You need that mystery, you know, the mystery that we see with the altar rail, with the sanctuary, separated with the priest praying silently to God in the canon and the traditional mass, you know, because he had very much symbolized Moses going up the steps of the mountain and where Moses conversed with God one-on-one. -on -one. It was always said that was why the priest ascended the altar steps during the canon because he was to represent Moses going up and he would turn around only after the sacrifice was completed to face the people again. So there's so much spirituality you can talk about with every single thing, whether it be the Gloria, the Credo, or the, the head bows and, and every genuflection. There's so much that can be said there as you just go a little bit deeper. And if the faith is really what we say it is, if it's really real and God is real and he's, wor he's worthy of all the worship we could ever offer, then it makes sense that we would want to go deeper, that we will want to understand it, that we will want to live out that spirituality, that that is our Catholicity. That is not only our connection with Almighty God now and the communion of saints in heaven, but it's very much a connection with our forefathers, too, who we hope are in heaven, who that's the mass that they went to. That was the liturgical year that they knew. And they look down on us right now, and we want to be united with them. So one way we can be more united with them is to take the faith as seriously as they did. And that's what I try to encourage people to do, not just in the liturgy, but in all the writings that I do on fasting and absence. I've had my new book come out, the second edition of the Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Absence, because I want people to understand it's not just the minimalism of now, well, this is all I have to do. You know, during Lent this year, this is just the only days I need to abstain or, or fast. But understanding this is what our forefathers did for literally centuries should make you yearn to want to join them in that sacrifice, to go deeper. So that should be a desire of every Catholic. Every year, I, I tell people, I hope your Lent is a little bit better a little bit stricter, a little bit more enriching. But that's the case with the whole liturgical year, too. You know, we have all the seasons. We have to live them all out. Uh, and I know I will forget, so I'm going to do it now. How can people follow what you're doing and get your books? Because I, I usually get to the end and then I run out of time. Yeah, so um, if you go, so I also write for uh, the A Catholic Life website, acatholiclife.blogspot.com. If you go there, I have links on there to my books uh, as well. Or if you just go to Amazon, all the books that I have are on Amazon. Just search my name, Matthew Pleasy, and you can find them there. So the new definitive guide, Catholic Fasting and Absence, is released, the Restoring Lost Customs of Christendom, that I released at the end of last year. And actually, it's been a busy year because even 12 months ago, I released the Roman Catechism Explained for the 
the modern world. And I had Bishop Snyder come out. He read and endorsed the book and, and some others, too. So it's been, a, it's been a busy year kind of trying to produce some good content like that. But, yeah, it's all available on Amazon and the acatholiclife.blogspot.com uh, website. Yeah, Bishop Snyder's great. We've had him on a couple times, and he really does speak with great clarity. Um, I just want to, you know, with all the attacks on tradition, and it's been going on for a long time, but really in the last decade under the current pontificate, the attacks, you know, whether it's chastising priests for wearing cassocks or, you know, whatever it may be, do you think this is really going to reinvigorate people to want to find out about the history? Because it, it seems to me more people, the more they attack it, the more people want to know about it. But I, I would like to get what you're seeing in your perspective. Yeah, that's the case. Whenever you tell somebody they can't do something or don't look over here, I feel like everybody's like, oh, what's going on over there? Let me take a look. Or oh, I can't do that. What, what's that really about? So, and uh, that's obviously the case, uh, as we see with the traditional mass too, even when people try to suppress it, people try to drive traditional Catholics underground, make them feel unwelcome really in the church, even though this is the faith is practiced by our forefathers and, and the popes and, and the saints for centuries, even during that persecution, um, you know, the, the light of faith will never go out. We see that even when, you know, the Romans obviously tried to drive the church underground, tried to destroy it, uh, even, you know, in this scriptures. It talks about the synagogue said, you know, we can't, you know, destroy this uh, if it's from God, you know, and it's case that this is from God. So um, I have no doubt that one day this this persecution will end. Um, and, and it's the fact that more people just, if you're drawn to it, if you know about it, if you go to it, you just want to experience it. You want to learn more. I don't understand why people in the hierarchy don't understand this, but I've seen it myself. So obviously, I, I as you mentioned in the beginning of the show, I teach at catechismclass.com. Uh, we offer online self-study courses. Uh, we've, I've done this now for over 15 years, and I've helped a lot of people become Catholic. We do online RCAA. We just try to help people also who've been Catholic their whole life but have been poorly Catholic to learn the faith. So always trying to teach people what they've missed out on or what they don't know to go deeper and to learn what it means to be Catholic. And I feel like all these people come from all different backgrounds, not just Protestant ones, um, but I mean, all different backgrounds, pagan background, Muslim backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds, everybody. Uh, just w once they learn about tradition, they're like, wow, like that's beautiful. I want to experience it. I want to do that. And we see that as well in history, you know, the traditional mass, the traditional sacraments, the Latin language, Language, the reverence of the liturgy, traditional fasting and absence that is, you know, roughly half the year was practiced, you know, in this regard, actually. This is the stuff that invigorated people. This was the stuff that was effective in missionary work. Not let's just get rid of it. It doesn't matter. Tell the priest to dress like everybody else, you know, speak in the same language, face them, you know, it, it, nothing matters. You know, God is just spirit and, and he doesn't really care. That's what people get the impression of now. And if he doesn't care, then why should we care? Why should we make all these sacrifices? But we see firsthand the missionary activity of the church was most effective when she was going out, preaching and celebrating the sacraments traditionally. And obviously miracles like Our Lady of Guadalupe, so many other ones helped further this along. But it was 
the church and all her tradition and all her mystery, uh, that was the effective missionary work. And that's how we're going to be effective missionaries uh, today, too, if we go back to tradition. And thankfully, lay Catholics can do that, too. You know, we don't have to rely on anybody else. Like, we have to take it on our own hands and understand that everybody is called to be a missionary in their own way of life. So we can go deeper in the faith. We can know it. We can love it. And then we can try to share something, literally, at least one or two things every single day with other people to be effective missionaries for the faith, too. Well, and that's where learning it helps. But I mean, the simple things, right? Receive communion on the tongue. If you're a female, wear a chapel veil. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. abstain from meat every Friday during the year. There's some very simple things that we can do that can help us go deeper and maybe have people ask us why it gives us the opportunity to kind of explain why mm-hmm. we're doing what we're doing and maybe, right, increase the interest, right? Absolutely. Like you have to live out your faith, you know, and that's that's the case. Like you said, women wearing veils, you know, why are we doing that? You know, it's obviously not just because it was clearly established in the 1917 code, but even St. Paul himself in the scripture says women should cover their heads and it shows the great uh, beauty uh, of women as well. It also helps them imitate the Blessed Mother. So there's many different levels with a lot of things. And that's the case with with everything. Why do we have to abstain from meat every Friday in the year, not just during Lent, but literally every single Friday, because our blessed Lord died on Friday. Do we actually care enough about that? As I tell people all the time in my work on fasting and absence, if you care for God so little that you can abstain from certain foods, you know, how can you hope to make it to heaven one day? How can you actually resist serious sin, you know, really tempting sin if you can't do something, you know, that minimally? You know, your article, and again, the article is in 1 Peter 5, it came out first part of January. It's called How to Live More Liturgically This New Year. So you give a, you talk a lot about what's going on and, you know, what some of the things that we're missing. That maybe, you, I, I would bet a lot of people don't understand the liturgical year and its two cycles, right? The the temporal mm-hmm. cycle and the sanctoral cycle. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about that just so people, it piques their curiosity so they'll want to go deeper. Right. So there's two, you know, different cycles in the church's year. You have the temporal cycle uh, and you have the sanctoral cycle. So the temporal cycle uh, is the cycle probably most people are familiar with. It starts during Advent. You go into Christmas. You go into, you know, time after Epiphany. And then, you know, this is the case, you know, uh, traditionally, of course, then you go to Septuagint, the two and a half week of preparation before Lent, and you have Lent, uh, then you have Holy Week at its end, then you celebrate our Lord's resurrection throughout all of Paschal Tide, also called Easter Tide. And then, you know, we celebrate our Lord's Ascension, Ascension Tide, Pentecost, and time after Pentecost. And um, what's really new, and I explained about that in the article, is the changes that occurred in the Novus Ordo in 1969 were drastic in the temporal cycle. They removed Septuagesima entirely, um, they, thus the Alleluia was continued up until last Wednesday. But this period of Septuagesima was, was very important because it helped you ease into the strictness of the Lenten fast. So the Lenten fast is the strictest fast of all. It was always for a long time until 1741, actually, it was no meat at all ever during Lent, not even on Sundays, no dairy products, no eggs. That's why Easter eggs are a big thing, you know? So it was getting ready for this very strict fast. And traditionally the meal was always had after sunset. Uh, It was just a very small meal. 
is a very hard fast. It's the hardest one of the year. So you would have this time to ease into it in preparation. So they eliminated that in the Novus Order. They also eliminated the requirement to veil statues and images during Passion Tide, which is an appropriate um, way to live more spiritually, to see our Lord hiding himself, as the Gospel talks about in Passion Sunday. He hid himself and went out from the temple. So we, we physically manifest that in the hiding of the statue, and we feel our Lord leaving us. So we really live more, you know, like as we get closer to Holy Week, we are journeying with our Lord to see him die. And you feel that more in the traditional mass as you live out that in the different gospel passages each day during that week. You feel like you're going up with him to die. And you're also suffering because we're doing the strict Lenten fast. So it just goes hand in hand. Uh, so these are some of the changes uh, that occur in the temporal cycle. Even things like, for instance, the Feast of Christ the King was moved from the last Sunday of October to the final Sunday before Advent. Uh, it was in, it was originally set for the last Sunday of October because it was meant to be right before the Feast of All Saints. So we would celebrate our Lord, the great King of all the saints, and then we would celebrate all of his elect who went uh, already before us into heaven. So you lose some of that spirituality. But that's the temporal cycle, but the sanctoral cycle was also uh, significantly affected uh, after the changes in 1969. So that's all the different saints we celebrate throughout the year, whether we're talking about St. Patrick, we're talking about St. Valentine, people know really well, or just all the other myriads of saints, you know, St. Benedict, um, St. Gregory, all of them. But part of the changes that also occurred after 1969 was more than 300 of these saints were removed from the general calendar. And, and that's drastic. So many of these saints that were moved, people don't know about anymore. I talk about in the article a few names, like, do you know who even St. Cletus is, the Seven Holy Brothers, St. Felca, St. Placid, St. Ursula, St. Barbara, saints that people used to know very well. I have unfortunately, you know, people just don't know anymore. And I did a study a couple of years ago now, I linked to that in the article, where I actually analyzed the names of every single Catholic parish in America, because I wanted to understand what are most parishes named after to the least. And um, unfortunately, part of this changes in the sanctoral cycle is people have then lost the connection with some of these saints. And as time goes on, parishes are renaming, parishes are closing, parishes are choosing names of modern saints. And some of these saints who have been so highly venerated for so long, like St. Giles and others, uh, or St. Procopius, Nobody knows who they are now. Their parish is closed, and they're left with just a few left in the entire country, or maybe none at all. So devotion to them is, is kind of, you know, being eliminated, even though they were venerated for such a long time. So not just understanding the temporal cycle and sanctoral cycle is important to us, but we have to live it out. We have to live out that spirituality and live out the connection to those saints. And that's why I tell people, step one of going deeper in the liturgical year is attending the traditional mass in the 1962 missal, just seeing initially what was what was lost there. And there's different layers of going, you know, deeper. If you even go to the pre-1955 one, you'll see there's there's even more saints and there's more commemoration and there's a little bit more complexity that shows the great, uh, you know, robust uh, liturgy that the church really has. But when you just go that first step, a lot of people who are in the tradition are like, whoa, like I had no idea. Like we have all these saints who I've never even heard about. And that's really eye-opening to a lot of them. You mentioned the pre-1955 martyrology um, in English. Is there is there a book you would recommend or a place people can go to kind of find out more about these saints? Because this is something we can do on our own. We can do it as families. Really, it really is an opportunity to grow in our faith within our own home to understand just kind of the richness of, of what we're missing. 
I say everybody should have at least a copy of the Lives of the Saints. You know, like, for instance, the older one, the Butler's Lives of the Saints, as according to the before the 1955 changes, is great if you can find one of those. But even if you just pick up a copy of the Roman Martyrology, is on Amazon linked to from my article. Uh, Joseph Collins wrote the introduction for that. That book is the traditional Roman Martyrology translated into English. Uh, it's the third Turin edition of the Roman Martyrology. That's the one I personally use. That's the one that um, I've recommended to people. And there's just so many saints every day. So, so if you pick it up, you know, they're going to have some information about some saints. Some would just be like, this saint died at this place. Uh, but you'll see, like, every single day in the church's year might have 30 different saints, for instance. And uh, not all of them are celebrated liturgically. You know, you might go to Mass, you know, where St. Paul the First Hermit is is the one said for that day, and the Mass is said in his honor because he's on the calendar. But if you pick up the martyrology, you see, like, well, there's also, like, 28 other saints commemorated this day who who died on this day, who are now in heaven, and we want to keep their memory alive and understand their triumphs as well. And what's interesting, too, is if you pick up the martyrology, that's how you realize all the Old Testament prophets are in here. We might not have feast days on the calendar where, you know, this is the feast of St. Jeremiah, this is the feast of St. Isaiah, but they are saints in heaven. They are commemorated in the martyrology. Uh, I mean, for instance, one thing that I think that initially could be really uh, significant spiritually for people is to understand that Adam and Eve are saints and that they are commemorated in the martyrology on Christmas Eve. So we see our Lord coming to to save us and to restore us, born at Christmas the day before commemorating the martyrology is, is the very first man and woman of the entire human race. So that connection where he has come to undo their sin is really only understood if you're reading the martyrology. So then you can see the close connection to why the church put Adam and Eve on Christmas Eve as the forefathers and ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ born the next day. So that's something I recommend everybody do. If you want to go a little bit deeper as a family, pick up the older lives of the saints of the martyrology, read it every day, pray the traditional collect for the traditional masses. I talk about votive masses as well, understanding that not just is every month dedicated to a certain mystery of our Lord or a part of the faith or to a saint, like for instance, March is always devoted to St. Joseph, but Wednesdays are also devoted to St. Joseph. So we might want to pray an additional prayer to St. Joseph on Wednesdays, the colic from uh, the devoted Mass of St. Joseph. Maybe we want to pray a litany in honor of St. Joseph. That's how you live more liturgically. You know, every family, every individual should be praying and living liturgically. And obviously not everybody can make it to Mass every day. If you can, that's wonderful. I encourage everybody to do. I try to as well. But there's more than just going to Mass. There's the Divine Office. There's these other prayers where you can actually participate in the great liturgy of the Church, the official prayers of the Church, from your own home. And that's these ways, the martyrology, praying these colleagues, praying the Missal. These are ways we can do that. We participate in the Church's liturgy even from home. And it helps when we go to Mass. It just makes it that much richer when we do those things and we do challenge ourselves and really dive deeper because then when we go to Mass, it, it the meaning becomes even greater. Do you also talk in this article, and we're down to the last couple minutes, I know this always happens, but you know, how to make uh, resolutions for the new year. You give 10 suggestions, and I know we're into the year, but mm-hmm. there's, it's never too late, right? We can always make changes. We don't have to wait until the future. Let's start today. And you do give 10 great suggestions for people to kind of help them go a little deeper. 
the first of the year is a great time because people view it as a great starting point. But with all of these, there it's important that when we make resolutions that they actually take an effect. So we need to habitualize them. We need to hold maybe an accountability partner, you know, say like, I'm going to, for instance, one of the resolutions is pray the rosary every day if you're out of the habit. So don't just make it up. You say like, I'm going to say the rosary every day. No, well, what time every day? Are you going to say it with yourself, somebody else? Okay, you're going to say it in the evening. You're going to say it in this particular chair after dinner. Okay, that's great. Now you've habitualized, you've connected with something else you're going to do. You're going to have dinner. Then you're going to say the rosary. And you're going to say uh, with your family, if your family's around. So that that's something to make it concrete. So I talk about things like praying the rosary every day, praying the little office of Blessed Virgin Mary, the divine office, praying for the souls in purgatory, attending at least one extra mass during the week, going to confession at least every two weeks, fulfilling the first Friday and first Saturday devotion, wearing the brown scapular. And if you're not already invested in to make sure you properly are, buying brown scapulars for other family members, adding extra days of fasting and absence in your life, for instance, fasting and abstaining all of Lent, as well as the 40 days before Christmas, the different vigils throughout the year, as well as the Ember days, studying the faith through courses like the catechismclass.com adult faith formation program that I offer, or really just evaluating like what are certain sins or addictions that you actually have and those are what you really need to conquer. You know, that's really your obstacle and possibly making it to heaven. So what do you actually need to do to have that? So these are some things to think about. And, and you know, during Lent, this is a great time too. like people focus on this a lot during the beginning of the year. But during Lent, this is an ideal time to make resolutions and go further. So don't wait for January 1st. Now is the time. You know, Scripture says now is the beginning. Now is the day of salvation. So I hope everybody who's listening takes it seriously to say like, well, if I can live a little more holy starting this land and continue it afterwards, I'm going to do so. And if you're not doing all of those, it's a great time to add a few because this stuff really matters. Living liturgically is ultimately about one day making it to heaven with you and your family and participating in the liturgy of the church, because as scripture says, there's an altar in heaven. There is a liturgy occurring in heaven. We want to be part of that heavenly liturgy. The Lord reminds us in the first chapter of Mark, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, the time is now, right? It's not tomorrow. It's not next year. It's like now is the time because none of us is promised tomorrow. So if we want to mm-hmm. go deeper, we want to grow in our faith. The calendar I mentioned, uh, Taylor Marshall actually put it out. Um, okay. I mean, I'm sure there might be other ones, but this was, you know, this is one that can be helpful. We can go through each day as a family member. But it really is, uh, you know, reading your article, and I would encourage people to get your books, this going deeper is something, and you brought it up earlier, right? It's incumbent upon us, right? If we're waiting for the clergy to lead us, some might, but some aren't. That's not going to be an excuse. As a matter of fact, we can encourage clergy, can't we? We can encourage them to, on Wednesdays, pray a mass for St. Joseph when there's not another obligation. So there's a lot of things that we do. I talk about that in my book, The Lost Customs of Christendom. Don't wait for your priest to do things. Go to them and say, hey, this August 15th, I want you to do the traditional blessing of herbs. On our Blessed Mother's Feast Day on September 8th, I want you to do the blessing of grapes. I want you to bless wine on St. John's Feast Day. These are the things that a lot of priests are like, well, I guess the people just don't want it. They never ask. So, I mean, I'm really busy. I'm not going to go do it if nobody shows up. So learning what we've lost, these customs, these things, and saying, no, this is what I want. I want to make my priest aware that this is what we want. A lot of them will go along with it, too. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.